Well, Kira, good morning, everybody. Uh, wasn't that a fantastic time that we just had with our music team? Um, Howard Morrison would be proud of that rendition of How Great Thou Art. Well done to Prue and the team for leading so well this morning. Well, it's, um, it's been four or five long weeks, isn't it, where we haven't been able to meet, and we're trusting that in the days ahead we're going to hear some good news from the government in respect to getting back to level one, and we're really hoping and believing that we'll be back together this time next week. Um, you may have already picked up that online we've put up a video of an interview that I conducted with Dr. Richard Thurlow from the Waipuna Hospice uh, to talk about euthanasia, as we'd appreciate this referenda is coming through very shortly, and we wanted to just get their side of the story, what it is that they see happening with regards to euthanasia and the impact that will have upon our society. So uh, have a look at that. It's about 15 minutes online. I think it's worthwhile having a look at. But for now, we're going to push on in our series out of 1 Corinthians. We've been calling this series The Prodigal Church because it's a church that's in the making, but it continues to walk away, come back, walk away, come back, uh, as the prodigal story tells us. And so this morning, the topic that I'm looking at uh, centers around these, this question about religion or faith. When you tell somebody that you have faith in Christ, somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is, when you say you have faith in Christ, people will immediately think of the word religion. You say faith, they think religion. You say faith as in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they think religion in respect to rules and regulations, thou shalt nots and thou shalt do's. So therefore, there's a tension between the word religion and faith. In fact, the Greek word religion comes from a verb that says relegare. It means to bind. And so you don't have to have religious faith to be bound. You can be bound to a whole lot of habits which create, if you like, a religious fervor for a particular thing that you might do. It might be a sport, it might be music, it might be something that you're very interested in. But this morning we're talking about religion and the difference that that, um, that, that word is when we look at it through the eyes of faith. One of the things about this Christian faith is that when we fall in love with Christ, the thing we're trying to do is to, is to please him, to please Christ. And so therefore, it's very easy for us to simply say, hey, just tell me the rules, tell me the rules, and I'll be able to follow the rules and keep God happy and keep myself in a good relationship with God. You know, in many respects, that's the easy way to do this thing called faith. Uh, however, um, it's not the way that faith works. It's not the way that faith works at all. In fact, what happens is uh, faith, when it becomes just rules, it becomes hard, mean, and legalistic. And uh, you'd think that someone's been baptized in lemon juice because they're so mean-spirited. So this morning, we're looking at, uh, at Jesus and his example of faith over religion. And then we're going to look in the book of Corinthians and see how this whole tension of faith and religion are being outworked in a real setting, in a real church. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you an example uh, from Jesus' own ministry of what it is that Paul is describing later on in Corinthians, because it starts in the Gospels, it starts with Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples were uh, going about their business, and we're told that some religious leaders, some Pharisees, came to test or question Jesus about the way he was conducting himself and the disciplines in which he was in this case, not imposing upon his disciples. So let's pick this up in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. 
Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? We'll stop there. Now, I didn't raise this because we're in sort of um, hand-washing madness at the moment because of COVID. Uh, I raise this because this is a simple example of how religion and faith works. So here we have these elders from Jerusalem, it says, and they have asked the disciples, Jesus' disciples, why they don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, you'll notice there in the third line, it says that um, the question is, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? This tradition of hand washing before every meal was something that the elders of the faith, the, the Jewish elders, has said is a good discipline that will allow you to fulfill the Old Testament law, which said that we should wash our hands when we've come in contact with things that are unsanitary. Okay, so there's a whole list of things that you have to make sure you wash your hands after dealing with. The hand washing before food, though, is something that's been imposed by the elders. So it's not God's law, it's man's law. And so why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Now, the question that comes to mind is, how do the disciples get to this place where they're comfortable not to wash their hands before they eat, when they've been raised in a tradition of hand washing before they eat any food? Well, it goes like this. You can only imagine that some of them would have been turning up to a meal or maybe they're eating on the run and they didn't have any, any water to wash their hands. And Jesus would have gone, it's okay. You don't have to wash your hands before you eat. Now, some of them would have taken Jesus at his word and gone, okay, that's all good by me. Others, though, would have been more reticent. It's like, oh, hold on, I've been washing my hands before I eat since I can remember. This is a tradition. Surely it's something that's really important to God because it's something we've been doing for so long. And so this is where someone's conscience gets in the way of what it is that Jesus is saying to somebody is okay to do. So you can only imagine yourself, wouldn't you, if you were in that position where you're thinking, oh, is this the right thing to do? I'm not sure. And so Jesus is saying it's okay, but I'm not so sure about it. Oh, oh okay, it's a matter of conscience. Jesus pushes on and he says this. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And so here, the hand washing, the food that you eat is all tied up with what is clean. And Jesus is saying, you're no cleaner by virtue of what you eat, but you are cleaner by what comes out of your mouth. In other words, the expression of your soul, the outworking of your thinking. Uh, Jesus made this very, very real to his listeners when he said that those who look at somebody in anger have committed murder in their heart. Those who look at someone in lust have committed adultery in their heart. It's all about the heart. It's not about the physical food. It's about the spiritual food that identifies you in respect to your place and your position in regards to righteousness. So what had happened here, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders were concerned about it, is that Jesus had moved, Jesus' disciples had moved to the place of having a clear conscience about hand washing before a meal. And it's this word, clear conscience, that I want you to hold on to as we now move into that setting in Corinth where we look at once again at the prodigal church. You see, Paul was getting asked questions through letters. What about this? What about this? What about that? And one of the mark, marker statements in Corinth 
that came to be a real saying, a real slogan, a real mantra, were these words that we looked at a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 6, where they say, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So here's Paul saying, listen, we're not bound by the Old Testament law. And yes, because of the freedom in Christ, you have the right to do anything that you want. But not everything is beneficial. You have the right to do anything, but you will not be mastered by anything. In other words, don't let something become religious in your life. Don't let it become a bondage in your life. And so the summary of this, and this is the summary that some people really struggle with, is that Christians are called to think. Christians are called to reason. You don't turn up to church and leave your brains and your gumboots at the door. You're called to come in and reason your faith in the time and era that you live. And we live in a very peculiar time, in a very peculiar era, whereby there's so much being asked of us by so many different people, so many different questions, so many moral dilemmas. But Paul is wanting to address this in the, in the city of Corinth. And it gets wrapped up with the food that they eat and where the food comes from. So here is Paul being pursued by a group of people who are struggling with the issue of conscience. They didn't have a clear conscience about the food that they ate and where it came from. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Here Paul says this. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, there's a mouthful of a statement, isn't it? You put that one as your scripture memory for the week, you'll have a bit of a, bit of a wrestling match on your hands there. But let's just go back to this question of uh, food sacrifice to idols. Paul opens up with this statement. So then, about food sacrifice to idols, he asks. Well, What's going on in Corinth at the time is there are a number of different temples where worship is occurring. Let's just take two examples. The goddess of Aphrodite, which was a sex cult. Uh, the god Zeus, which essentially is a, a warrior god. Now, these two um, gods had temples dedicated to them in Corinth. And what would happen is people would go into those temples as an act of worship. They would take an animal there and they would sacrifice this animal as a way of declaring um, something that is costing them as being given over to God, be it Aphrodite or Zeus. So what would happen then is a portion of this sacrifice would be burned and the larger portion of it would be taken away and sold. Now that Sounds reasonable, otherwise you get a whole lot of dead carcasses that have no value to anybody. So there was two ways in which that food was sold. One is where it was taken down to the local butcher and it was presented there and people could come along, just like we do today, go to the butcher, buy some meat, take it home, put it on your barbecue. However, um, that didn't always happen that way because within these temples themselves, some of them had... Uh, their own eatery, their own takeaway, their own butcher, their own restaurants. And so people could go and eat literally at these temples. And so the question now is, what are the Christians to do? What are the Christians to do when it comes to eating at these places? Should we go or should we not go? For some, it was fine. They felt quite comfortable going and eating at these 
temple restaurants where the meat had been sacrificed to an idol earlier in the day or week. Others were like, you know what? I don't feel so good about eating in these uh, temples because, you know, there is, uh, it could be, uh, we could be eating demons. We could be engaging with spiritual things that that are unclean for us. So here is the context. And so let's just go back now and pick up that, that text again and see what it is that Paul's saying. Paul says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, little gods, and many lords, little lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So what's happening here is we're being told by Paul that these temple idols that are being worshipped are actually not gods at all. They have no power. They have no authority. Therefore, by not having power or authority, they have no dominion over us at all. But what's happening is some people still see that these these gods that have been worshipped in these temples that have been made that are extravagant and enormous, that these demonic gods have some power. And so this is where that whole challenge of love building up, sorry, knowledge building up or puffing up comes into being. You see, Paul is saying to some of you already, you know that these temple gods, Zeus and Aphrodite, are not real gods at all. And so therefore you completely dismiss the fact that they would have any power over you at all, and therefore you can eat the meat sacrificed at their temples without any problem. Some weren't so convinced. And here is Paul saying, listen, um, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So if you have knowledge to think that these gods don't actually carry any strength or any weight, then you're feeling comfortable about that fact. Therefore, don't take your knowledge and allow that to puff you up in a way that you feel superior to another person. Because somebody else's conscience might not be quite so okay with this. Because if you go around with this knowledge that puffs up, you're breaking or violating the first principle of Christian community. That is, you think higher of yourself than you ought to. And therefore, you're lording your knowledge over somebody else and in effect intimidating them to a point where they might completely back away and fail and fall. So Paul is now really concerned about how this meat that's being sacrificed to idols is not so much the the meat itself, it's the attitude of the people towards the meat. So Paul says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed, still so accustomed to idols, that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So unlike our disciples who had no problem now eating food before they were, uh, without washing their hands, um, the disciples' consciences were strong. In this case, Paul's talking about people whose consciences are weak, defiled. So Paul says, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights 
does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So your knowledge that puffs up says, I've got no problem eating this food sacrificed at, a, at an idol temple. Uh, but for someone else, there could be a problem here. And, uh, and Paul is very specific when he says this. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So to put that in very, very um, a real setting, it would be like myself, who I may have a good conscience about eating meat at the temple of Zeus, says, hey, come on, buddy, let's go and eat at this temple because, look, they've got a great meal there. It's a good price. Let's sit down and eat it. And uh, my buddy says to me, oh, I'm not so good about this. I think that I shouldn't eat this food because it's been sacrificed to an idol. And I say, ah, idol, schmidl, who cares? It's a nothing. You know, don't worry about it. It's not a God. We worship the true God, the living God, the powerful God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. These idols are just nothing. And your buddy goes, well, come on, come on, come on. I'll shout you. So you go to the temple, you sit down to have a meal, you're tucking into your steak, and the other guy's sort of pushing it around his plate going, oh, I don't know, I just feel really bad about eating this. What Paul is saying here is that by virtue of this person's conscience, they are being destroyed by your knowledge, by your understanding. And so the responsibility that you have is now to consider how somebody else feels about something that you feel very comfortable about. So we live in a world too where uh, people are concerned about what it is that we, we eat. And just exactly the same way, this whole challenge of meat is still something that, uh, sorry, is, is emerging as something that is a, a powerful conversation also. What Paul is saying to us is that we can eat meat but as long as it's not defiling somebody else's conscience. Now, here in New Zealand, most of us don't even stop to think about this, but the majority of our abattoirs have food that is prepared in the halal way. That means that the slaughterman, when he cuts the throat of the animal that's been killed, has to say, Allahu Akbar, God is great, every time that the animal is killed. By doing so, that meat is now prepared in a halal way, which means that Muslims are comfortable eating that. Now, some of you wouldn't even know that, but we, in a sense, as Christians, are also eating meat that's been sacrificed to another god. So here we have this tension, this challenge, this problem ourselves. Some might feel, oh gosh, I didn't know that, now all of a sudden I feel bad about it. Well, we can easily overcome that because I know in my house, whenever, whenever we have a meal, we say grace. We say, God, thank you for this food. Please bless it to our bodies. And may we, be, may we glorify you through what it is that you give us on our plates. We ask for a blessing on this food. Any issue of conscience, not a problem. But it's one of these things that stirs up the Christian community because we're caught in this tension of knowing that my brothers and sisters' conscience is my responsibility how you see me act in my life is going to affect how you act in yours. And if I take a liberty that is something that stretches your conscience too much, 
then that is affecting you, that is hurting you. Now, this isn't about diminishing our Christian life down to the lowest common denominator of anybody who's offended over anything. But it does cause us to ask serious questions about the way we interact with the world around us or maybe the way that we worship. There are some folks uh, within the Christian community are very tightly aligned to the Messianic traditions, and therefore they will uh, enter into a whole lot of Jewish traditions as an extension of their Christian faith. There are those who have very tight rules around the Sabbath or around food that they eat. But life can be a lot more complicated than that, can't it? Especially in regards to issues of conscience. Over the last 30 years or so, uh, the tradition of acupuncture has become something that I can take as an example. Some people are quite comfortable having acupuncture. Others go, oh, oh, um, that comes from an Eastern religion, doesn't it? Uh, the yin and the yang, you know, the whole thing. The, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does too. So how is a person's conscience about that? Well, you've got to work that one through. I know for myself, I haven't had acupuncture. I have an aversion to needles. I don't like the idea of anybody sticking anything into me, so that's, that's quite easy. Um, but some would argue that in the West, our medicine system is built around chemicals, chemistry, chemist. Whereas in the East, uh, they look at the, the human body through uh, a system of the electrical system, nerves and the like. And so therefore, they've got a different worldview. Um, what about uh, another one that we all probably stumbled over at some stage, and that is alcohol. Um, Jesus didn't say alcohol was forbidden. The scriptures talk about us not getting drunk, but it's not forbidden. Now, some years ago, I was over in Europe at a Baptist World Alliance conference, which is a gathering of Baptists from all over the world, literally. And I can remember we were all meeting in this, well, not all of us, but a lot of us were meeting in this big restaurant Al Fresco restaurant, and um, at the end of the meal, you could see everybody's traditions starting to outwork themselves. So you had uh, those from the southern states of America enjoying a coffee after their meal, looking oddly at the British who were enjoying a pint, and the British were looking oddly at the Norwegians who were enjoying a whiskey, and the Norwegians were looking at the Lithuanians who were enjoying a cigarette with their whiskey. All of this in the same restaurant. And uh, everybody's scratching their head over this going, uh, who's right, who's wrong here? Well, clearly, these people all had an easy conscience about it. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Where's your point of beneficial? Now, I'd say cigarette smoking is not beneficial for anyone. Um, but however, in this country, in this tradition, that wasn't an issue. We only have to roll the clock back um, 150 years to one of the great Baptist preachers, Charles Spurgeon, arriving to pick up some of his students one morning. And um, he was in his open coach, and the students jumped into the coach, and he looked at them and said, you're smoking cigars at this time of the morning. Aren't you ashamed to be smoking cigars at this time of the morning? And with that, they all stubbed out their cigars. As soon as they'd stubbed out their cigars, Spurgeon reached into his pocket, pulled out a cigar, lit it. And they looked at him and said, Sir, didn't you tell us to not smoke our cigars at this time of the morning? He goes, No, no. I asked you a question. Are you ashamed to be smoking your cigar this time of the day? Clearly you were, but I'm not. <laughs> so it's all about conscience. 
Okay, that's the big issue. It's all about conscience. But bigger than conscience is the challenge for the Christian community to be aware of how other people are feeling in regards to what it is that we do with our actions. In church life, there can be all sorts of uh, different things that we, we discuss, like, like music, for example. You know, we should sing the hymns because those are the ones that Jesus sang. I've been told. I've been told. What about drums? Drums are just the, the, the beast of the devil. And there are some churches that don't have drum kits because they feel that they have some level of evil to them. Um, I can remember getting in the car with my son when he was about 18. It was his car, first car. And he had a CD at the time in the car. And when he turned the car on, the, the stereo came on, and this high-pitched scream just came pouring out of the sound system. I said, wow, in the name of Jesus is that. And he said, Dad, it's Christian screamo music. And I was like, no, those two things cannot go together. That sounds absolutely horrendous. And he goes, hold on. And so with that, he pulls his phone out, taps out the name of the band, pulls up the song, says, Dad, look at the lyrics. And so I looked at the lyrics, the lyrics that I couldn't understand because I couldn't hear them. And I thought, those lyrics sound better than the worship songs that we're singing on a Sunday. I said, oh, Taylor, I said, I appreciate the lyrics, but I just can't handle the music. So therefore, you will be very pleased to know we won't be doing any screamo worship music because it violates my conscience uh, to the point where I, I can't worship. <laughs> so you'll be pleased to know that. But what we're called to do, and here's the summary. The summary of what Paul is saying is we've got to think. We've got to reason. We've got to discuss. We've got to put God in his right place. But we've also got to consider all of the different journeys that everybody is on. Different people come from different places. And by being uh, different, we have a different set of values and conscience that is brought to the Christian community. So Paul says this, when you sin against them, your brother, in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fail. So Paul is saying, I would rather go without than cause my brother or my sister to have a failure of conscience where they feel that they have in their own heart violated something of a principle that would separate themselves from a good, clear conscience with God. And I think this is a, a beautiful, beautiful illustration of what Christian community looks like. It doesn't mean that you're going to abstain from everything that every other person would feel um, a little bit of a, a weak conscience towards. But when you are with other folks, you've got to consider what it is that would be causing them to stumble or causing them harm, not just physically, but within their conscience. Because we are there responsible for each other's clear conscience before God. And so these words are powerful, they're relevant, they're for this time, because our world is so filled with decisions that are yet to be made. Um, an example of this would be uh, the marijuana laws potentially going to change in New Zealand. Now, I've already been reading uh, stories or testimony about different states in America where marijuana is no longer illegal. 
And some Christians have now, with a clear conscience, convinced themselves that to take marijuana is perfectly legitimate. Why? Because they've cleared their conscience, or maybe they've seared their conscience. That's always the challenge. What's the difference? A cleared conscience or a seared conscience? Everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. I'd suggest that going to work, stoned, turning up to church, stoned, doing anything stoned is not beneficial. And so these are the reasoned arguments, the conversations that we have as a Christian community so that we are always engaged with our community. We're always involved with our community. We're always wrestling with what it is that other people are experiencing. And that, as Paul would put it to us, is an act of love. Even more than that, it's an act of worship to Christ. Isn't that powerful? Well, I'm sure this week, if you get together with your life groups or other groups that are involved with and you want to be discussing what I've talked about today, you're going to be in for a very, very lively debate. Because that's just the nature of Christian community. We're allowed to reason these things through. We're allowed to talk them through. We don't leave our brains in our gumboots when we walk into Christian community. We take our reason, our logic, our understanding with us, and we allow that to be uh, mixed up with the Gospels of Jesus, the directives from Paul, the understanding of what it is that this action or these words would do for and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's... Let's allow me to pray for us right now. Father, as we look at Scripture, we see not only is it relevant to today, but it's future thinking. For what Paul has described to us here isn't just an issue of meat in a temple. It's an issue that surrounds us with all the things that pour in upon us from our multicultural world, from our modern world, from our, our technically driven world, our media driven world. All of these things can bombard us, and we say, where is Jesus in the midst of it? It's very easy to default back to a, a little conclave of religion, a little isolated group where we just keep our own rules, or are we called to be engaged in our community? Yes, we are. And to be engaged, we need to take our faith, our living faith, and consider what it means in any given situation to be and to do. And so, God, we thank you for the spirit that leads us, and we've been told he will reveal all truth to us. We thank you that we don't need to be scared of the world around us and the way it changes, but we can equally ask you what it is that you're saying. What would you do in these times and in these seasons? So we can rest in this. And we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for each other that we love as brothers and sisters. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, um, we've got some studies prepared around this material, which I hope you engage with during the week. I'm really hoping, really praying to the point of believing that we'll be together next week. Um, so until then, God bless you. Have a fantastic week.